Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. As long as I've known this man, he's been an advocate of some description for the rights of blind people to access technology. He was, I guess, a bit of a firebrand on email lists when I first encountered him. And then he went to work for Microsoft, a company that has a huge influence over our technological experience, at least for many of us. He recently left his position at Microsoft, and I thought that was a good time to catch up with him to learn about his story and find out what's next. Kelly Ford joins me now. Welcome to The Blind Side, Kelly. Really good to have you here. Well, thank you, Jonathan, and it's good to connect with you again. I know over the course of your various ventures, we've connected a few times, and you're always a friendly voice, uh, and it's it's good to connect again, and thanks for that introduction. Yeah, it's good to talk to you outside of the Microsoft capacity, which we've been doing for the last, what, how long were we there, about 17 or 18 years? Uh, about 16 and a half. Yeah. I started at the end of 2000, and I, I left the company uh, at the end of March of 2016, or 2017, sorry. Before we get to the Microsoft stuff, give me a little bit about your background. I think you've always been blind, right? I, I have. I was um, born legally blind. Uh, like uh, many, I suppose I've had a bit of a journey down that path. I had a tiny bit of sight, um, uh, uh, still a Braille reader and things, up until age 18, uh, through various personal events at age 18, I lost all my vision and um, I have not seen since. Uh, so that's been quite a many years ago. It's actually, um, uh, I've just turned 50. I'm not shy about it. It's good age. So um, it's been about 32 years, I guess, since I've seen anything. And then what happened? You went to college and pursued a quite a different career from information technology. Yeah, it's actually, I've kind of had an interesting journey. I had always known I was going to go to college. Um, went to the University of Wisconsin and actually studied journalism. Um, and near the last semester of college, got involved uh, with a small organization that some that have been around a bit may know, um, the Trace Research and Development Center, which up until recently was housed at the University of Wisconsin by Greg Vanderheiden. Um, I, through some campus event, had run into them. And then, like anybody, was finishing college and was just looking for work, doing some temp jobs, and they needed someone uh, to help them do some writing, actually, and updating up some information they published. Again, this was before the internet, and we actually published a, a resource book. You know, imagine back in the early 1990s, if you even wanted to know where screen readers were, I mean, there wasn't a web to go look them up. So we put together a resource book and a database and staffed and a hotline where you could call. So I originally got hired by Trace to help update some of that information, uh, write different things, uh, go to the conferences and do the road show uh, on accessibility and kind of fell into the accessibility career. I mean, I'd always been my own advocate, but kind of, you know, started to realize, hey, this, you know, this really matters for everybody. And I seem to be average or better at, you know, understanding what we need and, uh, Kind of did that for uh, about five years. And then the Internet, this would have been the mid-1990s, the Internet, the Internet started to get more popular, the World Wide Web. 
And uh, that was really kind of a combination of some of my loves, right? Information, journalism, and uh, just being able to get at information for myself. And uh, it hasn't been around for a long time now, uh, but I did run a, an emails list back in the day. I know that's maybe a little bit old school, but it was called WebWatch. And, uh, I, I remember that. I was subscribed to that one, yeah. I think you use the term firebrand or something. Uh, I mean, I look back, and for those posts of mine I can find back then, uh, yeah, I wasn't shy about stating what I thought. Um, but WebWatch, back in the day, before there was things like uh, WebAIM and some other things, it was where a lot of people were, and kind of a sharing of, hey, this is how you use some things, and at times, you know, being a bit of an advocate to say, um, this is what we need, or hey, let's speak up about these challenges. And so I did that, and I was working in a community college in Oregon, uh, teaching access technology and making sure the campus was accessible. And then in 2000, I joined Microsoft. Uh, I started to work on accessibility of this product that was called MSN Explorer. It was kind of Microsoft's competition to America Online back in the day. Again, going back where you know things have changed and how times change. I did that, and then I worked on web browsing uh, in different forms. Uh, it wasn't all related to accessibility, but uh, I ran a team, managed uh, groups of people that were responsible for testing pretty much every aspect of the browser over my career, uh, while at the same time, uh, internal to Microsoft was kind of an advocate for accessibility and you know, uh, used that position, whether accessibility was a direct responsibility of mine or not. Um, to advocate, uh, and I was kind of at a unique intersection, I felt, because I had relationships with many of the external companies, uh, like uh, uh, what's known as VFO today, uh, back in the day, whether it was Freedom Scientific or Hunter Joyce, um, and several other companies, because I was using their products and using Microsoft products and sometimes unreleased versions of both, I was at a unique intersection to raise things, uh, going back when this just wasn't happening every day in more formal policies. And then several years ago at Microsoft, I took more formal roles related to accessibility. What some of your listeners may be familiar with is um, the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk, the consumer-oriented support service. Um, I was part of the group responsible. I ran a team uh, that took that service on and really built it up to kind of what it is today. And so I, I, I staffed that for a couple of years and managed that. At the same time, um, Microsoft, we started a uh, enterprise version of that for government and business customers. So I worked on that. And I also had a role where I was looking across the company at accessibility and from a user perspective at different products. And so I did different things, whether they were competitive analysis or other things. Uh, and then for the last year of my career at Microsoft, I went back to an engineering role and designed some of the features for the narrator screen reader. And we'll tease some of these things out further as we go through the interview, but I've always thought of you as a bit of a kindred spirit in a way, because you have this journalism media background. You decided to go on the inside track, as it were, so we've kind of tried similar paths with some differences. In those days, when you got involved in technology, the learning curve was much steeper, wasn't it? And yet you seemed to just have a natural aptitude for this, even though 
your background wasn't really computer science or IT. Yeah, I, I mean, I, th- I was kind of self-taught, and part of it was, I mean, back in the day, I think I, you know, in college, I kind of, I took some computer science classes um, and things, uh, one or two, but I just, I'd always kind of been, been in love with writing and communication, and so I never, I just decided that I didn't want the formal CS experience, but then as I started to use technology, I kind of realized how I can help myself, and whether it was writing scripts for screen readers, um, you know, writing web pages, or then on the job as my work responsibilities required it, learning um, enough to be comfortable at the very least in different uh, programming languages, whether that was uh, SQL for some database work I did or uh, C Sharp to do some things, um, C++ to some degree, uh, at least to be able to speak with developers or understand what they were telling me. It's kind of self-taught and comfortable again. And I just realized for me it was um, kind of the level I wanted. It was all, It's also been an interesting thing, uh, experience, because the other thing that it showed me is, and I think this is true even today, where we still have work to do um, in cases because, again, I made the choice that I didn't want to be a, uh, a full developer. I mean, but in every time I do work with these tools, it's like you're learning two things even today, I feel. And while the accessibility of development environments has improved a lot, especially if you're starting out, you're learning not only the coding and programming skills that you need, but often how to deal with the development environment, you know, whether you're taking a class or working from books, like you have to learn both of those things. And that's an area where I'd, I'd, I'd love to see the accessibility of those experiences continue to improve. They've improved dramatically, but there's room to, to continue to improve so that, you know, you don't have to be an expert in both the coding aspects of being a developer and also figuring out how to use the, you know, the development environments. You mentioned the Trace Research Center, and I remember doing a number of interviews back in the day with Greg Vanderheiden and some of his visionary ideas. Sometimes people in the accessibility space are a little ahead of the curve. I remember him talking about how there might be a device that might come along that could be a sort of a conduit to accessing home appliances, which has always been a difficult thing for blind people. And now we have, you know, in the Apple space, we've got HomeKit. Uh, There are home automation protocols on all sorts of devices. Now your Amazon Echo can do it. All sorts of devices can do it. And yet he was really envisioning these things long before the mainstream was giving them any serious thought. Oh, yes. I mean, I I think back to my days at Trace and um, there there were some things that are less known, I'd say, in the the arena of people who are blind that Trace did. on, on your Windows computer, for example, there's a technology known as sticky keys. Um, so if you, if you need to type capital letters, right, we, we generally will hold down, say, the shift key and the letter at the same time. But for some people, um, you can't do that for, because of a physical uh, disability. So Trace actually created a, a technology called sticky keys where you can type the shift key five times and then hit the shift key followed in sequence by a, a letter, and it will be capitalized. My point is that originally that was developed at Trace, and 
we distributed it through the Trace Center until it got built into the uh, operating systems. Uh, there was a thing called the Access Pack for DOS. There was a thing called the Access Pack for Windows. Those were add-ons. like They were software disks that used to get mailed out and things, and now they're built in. And that's just one example. You've cited some others where um, Greg actually had a lot of thoughts and, and ideas that as I look back, you know, some 25 years ago to some of the things that we were, he was talking about and at conferences and things, that some of that has come to fruition. I mean, it really is amazing, actually, as an individual who's blind, when I think about, you know, the level of control I have. And the beauty is, as some of this is, this is actually, I think, one of the most important points that I think about when I think about accessibility. So you mentioned Alexa and Amazon and the iPhone, right? The beauty is, as the mainstream computing platforms and technology platforms that society is using have grown up, right? On the positive side, we've had a level of accessibility to those. So we've got to come along just like anybody else for the ride. I remember in the days of the email lists that you were on, and it wasn't just WebWatch, but that was one of the key ones, I always thought of you as a very articulate person who would hold any number of companies to account. And you would write quite reasonable but fairly hard-hitting and direct email messages about accessibility issues. And sometimes you would signal an issue with a particular assistive technology product as well. And then next thing we know, you're at Microsoft. And I wonder about that transition for you because you had gone from somebody who was holding these technology companies to account, sort of one of the good guys in the blind community making some noise when noise was needed, to suddenly being on the inside, perhaps having to be a lot more reticent because you were privy to information that most people were not by virtue of your position. Was that a difficult transition for you to make? And did it ever give you pause for thought? Did you think, hey, if I accept this job at Microsoft, it's really going to change the way I interact with my fellow blind peers? Um, I'm sure I gave it thought back at the time, Um, you know, uh, going back and thinking about it. I mean, um, because, yes, I mean, like uh, so, right again with a background in journalism. Uh, anybody who follows the news today, you know, you, there's there's various levels of of information disclosure um, it, as you are work in the journalism field, right? I mean, there's and with my internet advocacy, right? It was I was pretty outspoken and direct about the things I thought, and I knew when I took a job at a company, right? Um, clearly. I wasn't going to be able to do that anymore. Um, but that didn't mean that my passion or energy uh, for seeing improvement uh, dwindled by anything. What I think it meant was that I, I would take my message inside the company. And rather than being able to knock on the door, if you will, virtually from outside, where I, I could walk to the building or walk down the hall or find the person and talk about things. Uh, back then, and I think it's uh, we also have to remember and go back and think about where we were when in two thousand and two thousand and one and two thousand and two there is a maturity about the accessibility uh, whatever whatever you want to call it field industry ecosystem 
that simply didn't exist uh, 15 and 20 years ago. I mean, right? The web, con access, web content accessibility guidelines were, you know, still being formed. Companies didn't have the level of accessibility commitment and things that they all have today. And so I, I, I thought about it, and I, I think one of the – I'd say the, one of the things you realize um, – when you do step inside a company is it's still, it's a collection of people and it's relationships and building those relationships, um, uh, you know, a person or a group at a time. And there was a, a gentleman at Microsoft when I, he was leaving just when I started, who kind of was the founder of Microsoft Accessibility, Greg Lowney. And uh, I don't know if anybody else knows that name. I remember uh, Greg, yes. Yeah. Uh, from back in the day. But, uh, and Greg and I have actually joked about this because I'll, I'll get to it. Um, I, 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 I'm sure I gave him what for on a few occasions about some Microsoft accessibility. Um, but then, uh, and again, Greg left uh, Microsoft, or I didn't know him much while he was working there. But through different activities of my work, I actually ended up working with Greg on some external uh, web accessibility committees. And um, we actually had wonderful conversations, traveled together on more than one occasion, uh, were frequent uh, lunch participants. And I often joked and I, I said, wow, if people from the Internet could see it, see us today, here we are, Kelly and Greg, you know, sitting, having lunch and enjoying this conversation. And I'd say that was something, you know, it's that relationship building, um, whether you're inside or outside, I think that can help a lot. Yes, and I think that that's a lesson in the way to do advocacy, because if you had done what is so common these days in this era where polite discourse seems to be out of vogue everywhere from the White House down. If you had fired expletives at Greg on a public email list and, and just frothed at the mouth, you would never have been able to do what you did and foster those relationships. But even if maybe some of the things you said made people uncomfortable, I think that you garnered respect, right, by being articulate. What you said always made sense, even if it was hard for some of those guys to hear. Yeah, and and I'm sure if I, there there's a there's a, a trend today, um, right? I, at least for some of the uh, areas where I read, like, hey, what would the this version of yourself say to the younger version of yourself? I I, I would by, be naive if I didn't say that. Would I would I do anything differently? You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I'm sure I might rephrase certain things. But I will say this: one of the things when I do talk about accessibility, whether it's you know, internal, external, or whatever, I do try to be um, factually accurate. And I do, uh, it just, uh, there's, a, there's a time and a place uh, for uh, some of that emotion, if you will. I, I think even if you're going to use emotion, um, you want to ground it in uh, facts and not people, and because um, I don't feel bad about anything I did. I think that it was a, this was, I, I think as any civil rights, um, if you study history, right, I mean, civil rights advocacy, if you will, goes through different phases. I mean, 
the fact is, in, in the U.S. and many other countries, I mean, we've had to pass laws that say you have to treat people with equity. So in order to get those laws passed, I mean, there did have to be some recognition that there was a problem. And you can, you can go down, whether it's, you know, disability access, accessibility, pick another, another civil rights arena that, you know, there, there's, a, there's a path. Um, and I think accessibility's traveled that path. I think it still has room to go on the path, but I think that, you know, as, as we've grown up in, and I mean, when I say we, I, I mean, everybody who works in this field, we've, we've seen that evolution, right? So 25 years ago, there might not have been somebody to contact at a company. Um, even I, I mentioned Greg and yes, he was there, but not every company had that today. There's in most, you know, sizable corporations, uh, a good accessibility infrastructure. So you're, you're probably moving from, hey, do this, you know, you need to do this, and here's why to, you know, okay, it's, I see that you're doing this. Here are some areas where you could still improve, or here's what I'm experiencing today. Can you share this with the relevant people? Once you get to our ripe old age, and I'm a couple of years younger than you, I'm conscious that, you know, it's easy to sound like an old codger or something, but it does make me sad that a lot of people don't seem to appreciate that what we have achieved today did not happen by accident. And there was a lot of advocacy and there was a lot of struggle. And that the way to ensure that we continue to advance is, is simply not always to accept a corporate position on something. And, you know, the one that really struck me in this regard was when Apple took the headphone jack away uh, from the iPhone, which had huge accessibility ramifications for those affected who use hearing aid technology or other technology in a particular way where because of latency they required a wired connection uh, and being able to charge at the same time without carrying lots of bulky accessories around, which is Apple's current modus operandi for want of a, for, for want of a better term. And so many people in the blind community just said, it doesn't matter what we say. It doesn't matter if we all club together and say to Apple, what you're doing here is, is going to have unanticipated, unintended accessibility consequences. Apple won't change their mind, and so we may as well just lay back and accept it. And that saddens me, because if that had always been the attitude, we wouldn't be where we are now. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I think about that, I mean, and I don't want to sound like the the, the old gentleman saying, well, I had to walk 15 miles uphill to Back in my day. Both ways in the snow. <laughs> and, and get off I my mean, lawn. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, do, I do look at the history, and I, and, and I think if you learn from history and see where it's come, um, you, know, you, you have to recognize that, again, there's a level of, of vigilance in, in being willing to speak up Whichever mode you do that in, uh, I think of some people, uh, you know, uh, there's someone that some of you, uh, your listeners may know in the accessibility space, Lainey Feingold, mm. uh, is, is, is someone I, I, I admire. Yes. Uh, because she's used uh, some tools in her toolbox of structured negotiation to uh, get great strides in things. And that's a form of advocacy and in, in, in to kind of use, uh, paraphrase yours, not just accepting what a corporation says. Um, 
you know, I mean, we've, we've seen just recently uh, here in the U.S. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you know, a legal settlement, one of the first ones uh, against the Winn-Dixie uh, store uh, talking about web accessibility and saying that they had to do more uh, to make their website accessible. And so I think it's important in a respectful way um, to speak up if things aren't working. Will it always work? Probably not necessarily, but I, I don't know. I've kind of learned in life, if you don't speak up at all, it certainly won't work. And I can say, you know, this Microsoft, I'll, I'll speak about them just for a second, just because I've seen that evolution where they're actively looking for more customer feedback. I think of my time from... Right when I first worked on the first version of Windows, I was around for, for example, was the um, Windows XP, right? And they maybe shipped one or two public betas uh, that were really hard to install and were these, you know, full-on redo your computer things. To where now they have a robust Windows Insider program where they're giving you builds of Windows quite frequently, and Office does the same thing. The whole point of that is if you want to give feedback and do that, um, you should and can, and they want that feedback. They solicit it. There's, and they're not the only company. A lot of companies do that. And if those work for you, um, great. You know. But the other thing I'd say you know, across the globe, right? we have many organizations for various disabilities, including blindness, and they have excellent consumer organizations. And it's important that we as uh, individuals who are blind continue to uh, make our needs known. Do you think that there is still a place for those collective advocacy organizations in an area where anybody can start an online petition about something that bugs them? I, I do um, because I, I think there's a, I think that I think that advocacy takes a lot, lot of different forms. And I, I think online, I think so, right? I mean, you can whether it's an online petition or, uh, Twitter or Facebook. I mean, you've seen, and this has in and out of the disability community. I mean, things that catch the social consciousness can make a big difference. I'd say whether it's, you know, and I'm not singling out any organization, but there are things that, you know, whether it's disability or other areas, I mean, lobbying and um, advocacy organizations aren't disappearing because I think what they do. Um, it's kind of, it's actually funny because I, I kind of tie them to why do we still any, anybody can start a blog too, why do we still need newspapers? What what I think advocacy organizations uh, bring is to some at sometimes a maturity and a system, uh, a knowledge and a history that uh, it, it, they can bring uh, again that relationship. What if I, so if I'm from advocacy organization X. I've built up a relationship with these people. And so I, I'm not saying I can get their ear quicker, but I know that I kind of have that uh, advocacy maturity, if you will, to kind of know how this system works and what to do. So I, I don't think there's, uh, I don't think that the organizations need to go away. I, I think that there's a variety of, anytime you're trying to accomplish something, there's a variety of tools that you can put in your toolbox and you pick which one is right for the appropriate situation you mentioned that you got yourself in a position where rather than sending an email lambasting a company or cajoling a company or whatever you were walking down the hall in one of the most significant companies in this space and having some influence that way of course the issue then is that 
other blind people don't see you doing that. Did you find that your relationships or people's perceptions of you changed when you, of necessity, became less visible and less public about your advocacy? And people may have thought, oh, God, Kelly's gone soft. Kelly's sold out. Um, I don't know. I, I really I can't say yes or no. I don't know. But I, I really, you know what, for me, it's more about what are the end results and um, are we are things getting better? Whether I get credit or I'm judged soft, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I think people that know me in the offline world would say that it's not really what I'm about. I, I like anybody. Sure, I, 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 I like to be acknowledged for things. I mean, we all do. We're human beings and creatures where, you know, we have feelings and emotions. But I would say, for me, um, the, the walking down that hall or uh, understanding it was—if I saw the change—that that was really what I took the greatest pride in. Not anything. Not whether it, people saw me as hard, soft, or otherwise, um, because I think at my core, what I'm about is. Uh, and it might sound sappy or whatever, but um, I believe that technology has a way to make things easier. And I know this this might sound cliched, but just, you know, I've gone from my life, uh, you know, where I started in school and I used to write all my papers in Braille and then retype them on a typewriter <laughs> because – that's, I mean, I had to read them, and uh, my teachers had to read them. It's like the Monty and Python know, sketch. We would have dreamed of having typewriter. <laughs> I, and I know how long that took, you know, to, yeah. to today where I, I'm writing on the, the, the computer or phone or whatever it is and communicating in all different ways, and every it's, it's equal. And so that's just, that's empowering. And the thing that I want to, remove the most is the frustration people feel you know there was a period of my life um when i taught regularly um uh, when i lived in oregon um the oregon commission for the blind uh actually sponsored these little workshops i did we we would have 12 people learning to use the internet at a time and i taught these two-day classes and again sounding like the you know dating myself but this is in the day um, when you like maybe you were using uh, uh, Netscape or um, this is before there was things like a virtual cursor or even yeah. uh, to date myself, you know, folks that have used JAWS uh, for a while may remember when there was a reformat the web page command. Yes. Uh, mm. This is even before there was that. I mean, if you go back in the late, uh, early to mid to late 90s. But I just remember, you know, uh, fully capable, intelligent adults um, being so frustrated at how hard things were. And I always remember when I took the job at Microsoft, this is one of the things I remember. I, I remember s sitting there and teaching these classes and seeing the absolute frustration in people and saying, I just wish for one hour some of the people who have developed this technology could come and see how human beings are experiencing this and what emotional impact this is having on them. Um, 
and 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 I'd say when I went inside uh, Microsoft, like I was able to convey that not in, not in a throw a fit way, but just to talk about that once in a while. And the beauty is also the positives, the happy, the joy when things work, like that joy of being able to do something that you weren't able to do before. Read this, I mean, or or get access to this. So it's I don't want to make it sound like it's all bad, because it's not. I mean, but I think that you know. That's, for me, I know it's a long answer to your question about whether people saw me as soft or not or whatever. I'd say this. I've, you know, I'm not going to say I haven't changed at all. I mean, we all evolve and grow. But I think my general guiding philosophies of life have always been the same. And it's just about, you know, where, where that message is communicated at different points in my career or life. The issue of people who struggle with this technology troubles me greatly because obviously you take to it intuitively, so do I, so do many people I expect who are listening. But since this isn't a technology podcast per se, there will be people listening to this who do find it a struggle to just get simple things done. And it, it, it's not because they're stupid. And you know, th- this is the sad thing that people think somehow there's something wrong with them if they find it difficult to use um, the the technology they have. Somehow we still don't have that completely right, do you think? I mean, it's, it's far more difficult, shall we say, for the average blind person to learn how to get something done on their device of choice than the average sighted person. Uh, I, I think um, I couldn't agree with you more, Jonathan. And I think um, one of the things that, again, talking about the message that I would often say is, it, look, fine, whatever quirks of fate allowed me to sit down and pick this stuff up. And sometimes it's, uh, you know, just dogged determination and, you know, maybe putting too much time into it, like uh, to, to figure out all the the pathways and all that. I would love nothing more than for nobody to ever have to spend some of the time that I've spent. And I'm sure that you've spent in figuring out all the quirks of different programs. And that time has come down dramatically, but it, it, it makes me, you know, and again, I don't want to sound whatever, but it, it, it does make me sad when I hear people say, well, it must be my fault um, when they can't when they can't use a program or they struggle with it because it's not their fault and I it it, it does it bothers me at a, a human to human level um, when people feel that way um, I get I take no joy in for example just because I've managed to figure out some quirks and you know I I, I can. I can find a lot, a lot of tricks to get around a lot of accessibility challenges, but I mean, cause I'll do all kinds of things, but I would never expect someone to have to do 90% of the stuff I do. And every time that I find those kind of challenges, I try and point them out um, to, to whoever's responsible and say, Hey, can we, let's look at this experience and let's continue. One of the things that I trumpet, I guess, is that I remember a time when we would have to wait for quite some time to be able to read a bestseller. We couldn't read it without 
waiting. Uh, and by that stage, it was not being discussed around the water cooler at the office anymore. You could do OCR. That's That's got a little bit better. And then all of the e-books came along, such as Kindle and iBooks. Uh, Kindle wasn't accessible for a long time. And so I've talked about the reality of being able to just get a book, purchase it like anyone else and read it on release day. And so then some people come to me for training and they take me up on this great promise, this great vision of of equality when it comes to reading, which many people love to do. And I see how some people struggle with something like downloading a book purchasing a book from the iBooks store, for example. This little thing can really change someone's life, just having access to the books that they want when they want them. And yet, for some people, it's still very complicated to do. Obviously, if there was an easy answer, we would have done it by now. Um, but I guess I, I look to, to natural language input. I would like to see these voice assistants become a lot more contextual and a lot smarter. That's one of my hopes, um, because yes, I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you on a device, you know, um, that, and I'm using an iPhone for my side of this conversation right now, right? That literally, I mean, I've got access to a, a world, a world, and, and you're talking to someone who used to use two computers to do OCR, one that would be <laughs> scanning the next page I wanted to read when it was a page turner, and copy the file over to a second machine to read it. Uh, because, again, that's dating myself, but, that's, I mean, I remember doing that when I was reading a really good book. Um, but I know that people still struggle with some of these things, and it goes to one of the things I've joked with uh, at different times, and I say joked in a, uh, a conversation. Um, I, I hold out hope that the artificial uh, intelligence and the assistants, whether it's Cortana, uh, Siri, um, all the rest of them, Alexa, that those things can really uh, help people take the next step. Because, look, I've got as many computer skills, you know, a lot of computer skills, and there's things I struggle with. Like, I, w- I want to get to a point when I can, I can say, insert your digital assistant name. Does my document look good? Right. Does okay. my... Sl- does does my slideshow look good? Not have to use the dozens of tricks I've learned with different screen readers to try and figure out, wow, did I make that slideshow look right? I mean, you know, let alone do some of the other tasks. Like, hey, I want to get this book. And just, I know what I want to do, and many users know what they want to do, but they spend far too much time having to manipulate controls to accomplish what they want. So I, you know, I don't, I, I hope that the digital assistance, it's one of the areas where I've seen, I see potential because training will get you so far in all of that uh, learning, you know, the, the tricks, but I just know if you can t- tell the machine what you want to do, um, it's probably the easiest. There are some things that are quite complex. I'd like to be able to do, for example, 
find me a flight from Wellington to Auckland on a given date that departs between 6 a.m. and midday and uh, book an economy seat. So I, I get that that has a lot of complexity, a lot of nuances there. But there are some things I don't understand why we're not doing them now. For example, I want to be able to say to my personal assistant of choice, what's the latest John Grisham novel? Uh, I'll have it tell me. And then I'd say, buy that book on whatever service that assistant has access to. I, I, I don't quite understand why we're not further along than we are. Well, I think you should give that feedback to um, all of the corporations that are working on this. And I, because I share your, um, uh, you, I, I, I've often, and I've thought about this. I mean, I got to see who else is doing it, but there's um, many things like that. Like I should be able to ask any one of them, you know, where's the hottest point in the United States right now? And then it, to me, I should, I should be able to answer that question. Mm. Uh, but what it will do today is it will probably give me some, temperature map and do all this other stuff. And I think that all the, right, there's that. And then there's the whole follow-up questions um, that, and I won't claim to be an expert in the whole AI field, but these are some of the things that they're working on in general. And my hope is uh, just kind of like I mentioned earlier, where, right, for, as technology, we talked about home automation and the other things briefly, like, we got to ride along on that train. I'm hoping that as artificial intelligence uh, grows and these digital assistants grow in their abilities, right, that we get to come along for that same ride. Uh, because I think the whole world wants these things to mature. We can all find uh, very quickly, you know, queries where people show the mistakes that these things make. I mean, they've come a long way. Again, if you think about where they started to where they are today and the things you can do. And I, you know, again, sound like a dating myself, but a hundred years from now, they'll probably chuckle at what we were doing with things like Alexa and Siri and Cortana. And they'll say, ah, you know, just th think about whether, think about um, physical transportation or anything else uh, in the world uh, that was going on in 1917 versus 2017 and how, what it was like. And I'll oh, think sure. about that accelerated pace of change uh, that we all live in today, uh, where we'll be. Yeah, I mean, 30 years ago, that's not that long in historical terms at all. 30 years ago, I was online with a 300-board modem connecting to bulletin boards. Uh, I have, I, uh, because I left Microsoft, Jonathan, again, I packed up some of my belongings, and I actually found some things that I had trooped all over the country with me. Uh, one of them was a Worldport modem. That <laughs> my first modem, I still had in a box. It was a 300 baud Worldport modem, and I still remember using that. And unfortunately, I also remember the first CompuServe bill I got. Oh my goodness! I got into because such. I, how much was your first CompuServe bill? Uh, it was like five hundred dollars. Yeah. Yeah, we, we had to connect in New Zealand through a packet switch network to get to CompuServe. And I, I remember discovering the executive news service and being a news junkie, I was just absolutely enamored with this executive news service. That had a premium on top of the standard CompuServe rate, plus you had the packet switching costs. And I was a student, so I was about, um, I must have been 18, I think, when I discovered CompuServe. I got my first bill, and it was $1,100, and I had no idea how I managed to pay that bill off, but it took some time, and um, 
my girlfriend who later became my wife was sort of threatening to leave me and she probably should have I think but I I mean just being so fascinated with all of that information and suddenly having having access to it I think even then there was just this little glimmer of what might be possible in the future oh I, 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 I remember reading I mean again this right I was started in journalism at the time and I, I was writing, this is a, in, a, in an era when I was writing articles for my campus newspaper and to read my own articles in print, I was, uh, for those of your listeners that know what it is, I, I was pulling out an Opticon to read my own byline in the printed campus paper because it wasn't online or anything. So, uh, you know, when I could go online and read some news stories on CompuServe, I was like, oh, wow, this was like heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember Willie Wilson's Blink Link bulletin board? I remember when he got his 9600 board modem and he used to have this tagline that he put on the bottom of his email, striding along at 9600 BPS. Yeah, and, and again, I, I, I don't know how many of your listeners know Willie Wilson, but again, you, you talk about um, uh, people uh, you know that work behind the scenes or just, again, uh, I didn't know the man personally at all, and I don't think I ever talked to him. But that name, I'm smiling right now uh, because to me in the in the blindness field, he's a giant. He's a legend, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, he, uh, and again, I know <laughs> we've used this phrase several times, but uh, I, I, some of the, the, the forum and thing that he ran that transferred information around bulletin boards, I mean, that was, for me, even though I, li- I lived in a city where there were some other blind people, that was the first time to connect for me with other technology enthusiasts who use screen readers and, and blind blindness stuff in a way that I had never had access to before. And so that name, uh, it just brings a, a smile to me, uh, really an ear to ear grin as, you know, I, I, I would hope to, uh, you know, live up to a, a small percentage of, of what he brought. Yeah, it's nice to think we can advance the dream, you know, and I still see names every so often from those very early BBS days, and there's sort of a special bond there, I think, between those who were using that technology at the time, because there weren't really that many of us, but as a kid down here in New Zealand, pretty isolated, it was amazing to be connected with uh, all of these Americans, uh, in particular, who were making technology happen. And so that, that, that they were special times because we were just getting an understanding of what might be possible. Yeah, and for me, the, what, when, I, when I reflect on this, you know, as I say, uh, I don't want to just be the, the old guy. Um, well, you are, and I so think, am I, and we can't help that. <laughs> what, what, I, what I think about is, you know, the, the stuff that people are just starting today, you know, whoever the, the 20-year-old Kelly is of today and doing whatever he or she does, um, what, what, will they, what will they be reminiscing about 30 years from now? Yeah. Like, how far will the world have come? And that, that to me, uh, if we remain... If we remain vigilant you know speak up when 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 we want and need to um i i i think the 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 future's bright and i'm optimistic but i'm also realistic that um we've got to remain um aware and communicative about our needs i mean and I would say that whether i'm talking about accessibility or again many other aspects of civil rights um, just because this is how the world is. 
in my view. Complacency is a really big issue that troubles me, as, I, as I've mentioned before. And that segues us nicely into something I wanted to discuss with you. And that is the fact that as a matter of principle, I firmly believe that a blind person should be able to walk up to any device, you know, particularly a computer device, and have it work. And so I suppose that there is a basic level of accessibility that we should expect. But just as, for example, you might have Windows Defender on your Windows machine, you may decide that you'd like security that offers some bells and whistles or perceived stronger features. And so you pay a premium to get something else. And I guess that's analogous to the way I see narrator and say a commercial screen reader. But I worry about the mainstreaming of our accessibility needs, dumbing down the offerings we have access to. And the trouble I have with this is that a lot of the people who make the purchasing decisions or the decision not to purchase are not blind themselves and they're driven, they're the bean counters driven by the bottom line. And I get concerned about the fact that blind people may be increasingly fobbed off with solutions that will not put them in the best position to be job ready. And this is where I would say um, there, there, um, we could have a whole discussion on this 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 very topic, and uh, you know, to the ex- I, I I would actually say um, for for your audience, you may actually want to uh, pull together a a group of different people and get perspectives on this because I think this is a very interesting topic. I think what I'll what I'll say is we talked earlier about the need for advocacy organizations, and I think this is one of the places where advocacy organizations can play a key role in ensuring that um, uh, when it comes to uh, education and other environments of employment, that those. So first of all, I'm a big fan of uh, making sure that the consumer. Uh, is empowered to help themselves and informed and uh, has choice. Obviously, then you hope that there is a, a good set of products available for that range of choice, but making sure that those making the purchasing decisions understand um, the trade-offs of what is available at the various price points, uh, be that free um, uh, or for a fee model. or a, um, And... and I think that this is an area where we just need to continue to monitor where things go and ensure however things evolve that at the end of the day we don't lose access. You know, if if if, if there's 50 things we can do with a screen reader, wherever, wherever that screen reader comes from, be it a, a commercial product, a free product, a, a nonprofit organization's product, wherever, that – we don't end up in a situation where two years from now, uh, you know, we're only uh, able to do 30 things because the the total number available has gone away, if that makes any sense. You talked about narrator, and that has come a long way in recent times. It seems that under the current leadership of Microsoft, they really have uh, put the pedal down to some extent on accessibility. You know, there are some really nice changes coming out with Microsoft Office. The Tell Me feature is something I use a lot. There is a, a greater prominence of the accessibility checker, a whole bunch of things that you can point to, things happening in Windows 10. What happened there? Why did Microsoft suddenly kind of really get the accessibility religion? 
Um, I would defer to the folks that are responsible for Microsoft to answer that question entirely. Um, I think that, again, I, I think that that's we can look across the industry and, and that's happened. Uh, as I said, I think accessibility's matured across the ecosystem for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, I mean, there's been accessibility legislation, there's been greater awareness. And I, I think that I would just say that you're seeing the, the dividends being paid of a lot of efforts throughout the years and awareness, um, right? I mean, it's not like there hasn't been accessibility laws passed to help this. And I think that what you see then is, um, and it's true, again, outside of accessibility, when uh, corporations recognize that, you know, there's a good these things going to need to happen, um, then they can deploy the resources and tools to do that well. I mean, they're not going to do it poorly, I don't think. And um, I, I think that the, the folks uh, in the leadership positions have a commitment, uh, just like you and I, uh, for a passion uh, to make a difference. And so I think that you're, you're seeing some of the dividends being paid um, you know, for uh, the road that's been been laid. As you look back on your time at Microsoft and some considerable time, especially in technology terms, what are you most proud of in terms of your legacy? Um, I don't know if I can point to any one thing. I, I, I'd say I, I'm proud of a couple of things, um, one of which uh, is really more kind of the behind-the-scenes part of my job that uh, most people wouldn't know about, and that was all the people that I had the opportunity uh, to manage when I worked at Microsoft for probably 13 of my 16 years there. I was a manager of teams, and so I, I touched the lives of a fair number of people, um, both in and out of accessibility, and I, I, I think um, I, I had a positive influence, and so I'm I, I'm very humbled and appreciative of those opportunities and to see, you know, people that I helped bring into the company grow in their careers. Um, and for whatever part I played in uh, getting Microsoft's accessibility to improve, whether it was, you know, from raising issues, talking to people, educating people, I think I'm proud of that. Um, you know, numerous individual features or products or things, but I guess I ask myself overall, um, did I make things better than what they were when I started? And I think by and large, I can answer that question as a yes. And so that, that's really all that I'm, I, I need to say and be proud of. It's a credit to Microsoft that you weren't pigeonholed. I mean, as you said yourself in latter years, you were doing a lot of really interesting things with accessibility. But I remember, for example, when you were involved in Internet Explorer and a number of other projects as well. So they didn't simply say, because you were the blind guy, we're going to keep you on on just blindness-related or accessibility-related things. You've, you've actually got uh, quite a lot of things that you can chalk up in those 17 or 16 years that you were there. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, and I, I I learned a lot, and I had a lot of exciting opportunities. I mean, there was there's things I did. Uh, one of the more interesting things outside of the accessibility space for three years, you know, I worked on 
uh, web browser performance uh, where we were uh, measuring in milliseconds, you know, improvements in every little uh, detail of loading a web page. And for me, it was an area I knew nothing about, but at one point in my career, I, I just said I wanted a different technical challenge. And so I was tasked with building a team to uh, manage that experience and build a, a lab of all kinds of computers and a measurement system and a bunch more. So um, I, I think that I I would say I think the, the good thing is for anybody, like, uh, you know, if you have the right interest or skills, and you can work at a company. I, I for the, that the times of my career that I wasn't directly involved in accessibility. I mean, the the beauty was, I still had the opportunities to contribute and speak up. I mean, I, I can tell you that there's things in you know features in SQL and things like that that I was using. You know, because I had to live with it and use it. Um, the different SQL tools, for example, during that period of my work, I, I you know I reached out to those teams and got some things fixed as a well, because I needed them to work for me, and as a result, you know, hopefully they work for other customers too. Many people would love to be you and working at Microsoft, doing all these amazing things, seeing things long before other people see them, making a difference. Why would you walk away from a position like that? Life is a journey, and uh, for where I was, am at the time, um, I just for uh, just decided I wanted to explore other aspects of life and uh, just um, decided, uh, again, uh, you know, a journalist might cover one beat for a long time and uh, then, they, then they go on to something else. And for me, just different life circumstances said um, I wanted to explore other things, other parts of the country than Seattle. Um, maybe accessibility at a different company. Uh, still kind of exploring what's next for me and just made a, a life choice to uh, try something different. So no clue at this point what's next for you? Anything's on the table? Yeah, I've got a few different things I'm exploring and working on, um, but um, also just uh, kind of enjoying life. And not that I wasn't enjoying life before, but um, nothing that I can say like definitively uh, this is me. I mean, I'm still doing things. I'm, again, I, you know, I, it's funny because uh, I, I I go back to my my advocacy a bit or whatever. Um, I'm, you know, I've, I'm not sitting, uh, twiddling my thumbs. I've been working behind the scenes with some companies on some things that I use in my daily life and talking to them and, uh, again, like getting them to improve some things and just, Figuring out what I, what, you know, again, what will be my next, uh, quote, professional role. Uh, still kind of exploring where that is and what I want to do. Maybe at least until your next big gig comes along, is there any possibility we may see a blog where you can flesh out some of your uh, accessibility beliefs and experiences? Uh, yeah, and I mean, it's, fun. it's funny because um, <laughs> internally at Microsoft, my blog, I, I do, I have a very, very infrequently updated blog at blog.kellyford.org um, that I kept getting teased uh, by some of my coworkers, like, when are you going to write another blog post? Because um, for the last couple of years, it's only been like actually one or two a year. Um, one of the one of the areas I am exploring just for my own uh, self-interest is, you know, do I turn back on the 
external writing machine and uh, start doing that. And I, I guess I also want to figure out what's the unique niche, uh, if you will, because honestly, there's a lot of uh, great stuff going on in the accessibility space. Uh, you know, when you look around, there's a lot of whether whether people writing and communicating about a lot of things. So one of the things for me is figuring out where's that unique value add um, that I can bring. And I'm still kind of looking into that and thinking about it. Well, maybe we'll keep in touch about what does come next for you. I just want to say thank you for uh, all that you've achieved over the years. And I know that in your various capacities at Microsoft, every so often, and I've tried to do it sparingly, I, I pushed what I called the Kelly button when I really got stuck or felt there was something I needed to draw someone's attention to. And you're always very gracious and, and willing to help out and put me in touch with the right person if you weren't the right person. Uh, so I appreciate all you've done. And I think you've done a lot internally that a lot of people don't actually know about that has made our lives better. So thank you for all that you've contributed. And it's not the end. So I look forward to finding out what comes next for you. If, if there's one thing I could say on that regard, Jonathan, so first of all, thank you for the kind words. But I'd, I'd say there's a couple of uh, a thing, um, and I will say I, I am one of the people that helped make sure we have this. It's not widely used, and for people that are comfortable with it, um, there is a website where if you have accessibility feedback or issues, right? So many different Microsoft products have feedback channels, but there is also one uh, general one uh, at uh, microsoftaccessibility.uservoice.com. Um, and it doesn't necessarily, it may not be the preferred method for everybody, but um, it is a place to log your concerns, questions, and issues. And I, I know for a fact that that is actively monitored um, so consider that, I guess, uh, the virtual equivalent of, of being able to reach out to any one individual. And Twitter and everybody, I'm sure your listeners know about the uh, Microsoft Enable account, and you can clarify those for folks. I think the beauty to me of where accessibility has come is it's not about individuals. It's, again, there's a corporate maturity, and it's at all the companies that we uh, use their products um, that that's when I talk about that accessibility maturity. That's what I mean. It's gone beyond just any one individual that you happen to know, and you can get your issues and ideas into the ecosystem of that company, and there's places for it to be handled now. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.